it's so easy to see ourselves in the disciples. And then whenever they get a command, whenever something's true for them, we think, well, that must be true for me. They're told to be fishers of men. I'm being told to become a fisher of men. But if the primary goal of Mark is to reveal Jesus to us, we should start by asking not what this story shows us about us, not even what it shows us about the apostles. We should start by saying, what does this story show us about Jesus himself? In verses 14 and 15, which we considered last week, we saw Jesus beginning his formal ministry. And we saw that he did that only after John was arrested. You might remember from from last week that Jesus waits until the ministry of the Old Testament prophets is done. John was sort of the summary, the final note of the Old Testament prophets' ministry. And Jesus begins preaching only after John has been put in prison. So... In these verses that we're reading this morning, we're getting the first recorded event of Jesus' ministry. We know he's preaching, but what's the first thing that Mark wants us to know that he does? What's the first thing that Jesus sees a need to accomplish now that his ministry's begun? So our first point is this. Jesus begins his ministry by calling his first apostles. In verse 15, you see the message that Jesus has been preaching His gospel, the time is here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as soon as Jesus starts preaching about that kingdom, he actively starts laying the foundations of that kingdom. Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church is a house of God that rests on a foundation. What is that foundation? The apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone Now that the ministry of the prophets is ended, Jesus is calling his first apostles. He's laying the foundation of his house. As as soon as the ministry of those who pointed to Jesus from earlier is done, Jesus now calls to ministry those who need to witness what he accomplishes and proclaim it to the world. So what does this show us about Jesus? Next week, we are going to encounter a word that is very important throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that word is authority. One of the main ways that Jesus shows us who he is is by demonstrating his authority, showing that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. Jesus has not just come to say the kingdom is at hand. He has come to say the king is here. And to show us that he is that king. And in our story today, Jesus is demonstrating authority. Both his right to call men and tell them to leave their lives and their livelihoods and follow him. And also showing that he has the authority to appoint officers in the kingdom of God. This story begins a thread that we're going to see all throughout the story of Mark, where Jesus is going to appoint, equip, call, eventually send out his apostles. Jesus sees this as one of the central purposes of his own ministry. So from the perspective of Mark's gospel as a whole, that's one of the main things that this story is doing. It is showing Jesus establishing his kingdom, demonstrating his authority by calling his first apostles and showing us that it was right for them to drop everything that they were doing, work obligations to take up this office and follow him. Jesus is making sure that he has witnesses of his ministry from the very beginning. He's looking 
looking for men who will be able to testify to everything that he did right from the start. For our second point, I want to break down the call that Jesus gives them. He says to these men, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Mark makes a point of not just telling us that these men were fishermen, but we see that Jesus calls them while they are near their boats. He even calls them while they are looking down and tending to their nets. Fishing at that time was done by throwing large nets into the sea and collecting the fish as they were caught in them. Fishing was kind of like gathering, almost like harvesting. But it was a harvest that the fisherman didn't cultivate himself. The fisherman didn't cultivate and raise the fish beforehand like a farmer would do with a crop or a herd. I've actually, I've met a fish farmer now, so apparently that can change and you can now cultivate a herd of fish. But at that time, fishing had this attitude of really trusting and depending upon providence. You put your net into the water and you hoped that God had raised up enough fish, that God had brought them to the right place and that God would put them in your nets so that you would come back with a sufficient catch that was good to eat. So when Jesus tells these men that their new job is going to be fishing for men, they are going to be thinking about this picture of letting their nets down into the water. This is even more evident in Luke's account, because Luke includes a miracle which Mark omits, where Jesus meets Peter and tells him to put his net into the water and fish. And you'll remember that Peter said, we were out fishing all night, we haven't caught anything. Finally, he agrees to go, and when he puts his net down, it becomes filled and overflowing with fish. So when Jesus tells these men that they are going to be fishers of men, this idea of God's sovereignty over what they're going to catch is front and center. Jesus is promising that if they follow him, he is going to make them gatherers in a work that God himself is doing. God is going to bring in a catch. The disciples' only job is to let down their nets and receive it. This is evident in the references to fishing for men, which we see in the prophets. Every time a prophet talks about fishing for people, they're referring to God's sovereign control to bring people where he wants them to go. And those references often get pretty heavy. They get pretty ominous. The prophets speak of God putting a hook into people and catching them to bring them to his punishment. Now in Jeremiah 16, which our brother Luke read for us, we do see that strong note of punishment, didn't we? But ultimately, this image is sending out fishers to bring people back from punishment. The fishers are an image of hope. Jeremiah says, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. God's saying his people have known his wrath. They've tasted his punishments in exile, but God is promising that he will bring them back from the punishment that their sin deserves. Sending out fishers is an act of grace. It means that no matter how far away they are, no matter the punishments their sin deserves, God will find them. God will catch them. God will bring them back to himself. Now, while this speaks first of Israel coming back from exile, Jeremiah hints here that there is a salvation coming that will be for all the nations. He says, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. 
So Jesus is here doing what Jeremiah promised that God alone would do. Send out fishers to catch men. Eventually men from all around the world. And to bring them out of punishment to himself and his promises. We already get a hint from Mark about how this is going to happen. How will they catch men in their nets? Mark has just said that Jesus has gone about preaching the gospel. And then Jesus goes to these disciples and tells them to follow him. In Greek, this literally means to come after him. This, of course, means physically following him, which they're going to do. It means obeying him. But it also means imitating what he's doing. Think of the game, follow the leader. You don't just come after, you do what they're doing. So these men are being called to do that proclaiming as well, to proclaim the gospel that Jesus has already been preaching. That's how they will let down their nets. That's how they will gather the fish that God's going to bring in. God's going to ensure that when the apostles proclaim the gospel, a great number of people will respond and come to Jesus. Now, all of this is still meant to be teaching us about Jesus. Jesus is showing his power. He's showing his authority He's showing what his mission is going to be when he calls these disciples. Jesus is the one who is able to bring people back to himself. He is going to accomplish that very good news that is going to bring them back. And he now is appointing fishermen who will gather in the people that he saved. We saw that in Jeremiah. That's something that God himself is supposed to do. So even here, we're already getting a glimpse of Jesus' divinity, his authority over God's people. And Jesus himself will sovereignly oversee this work. He's going to bring those people in. He's going to make sure that this mission is successful. We can also see this sovereignty and authority in the choice of men who Jesus has called. Mark says they were fishermen from Galilee. Now this doesn't necessarily mean the disciples weren't intelligent or weren't capable. We can see that James and John are fishing with their father and with servants. It's possible that they had a thriving business. However, these men were definitely not the men that you were going to go to if you were looking for officers in a kingdom or preachers to lead God's people. They just weren't qualified as leaders, as scribes, as priests. They were not from Jerusalem. They they might have learned culture and law there, but they were out in Galilee mingling with many different kinds of people. They didn't brush shoulders with great men. These were backwater fishermen. Their work required no rank or education. In Acts, the Jewish council is shocked when these men start preaching. Acts says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. By promoting men who just based on their life experience would have had no chance of naturally rising to the work that Jesus was calling them to do, Jesus was showing them that whatever they did was accomplished by him, was done entirely by God. The role of the apostles, like the prophets before them, was not to point to themselves. It was to point to Jesus who appointed them, empowered them, made their work fruitful. Jesus, who himself was going to accomplish all the content of the good news that they would go out and proclaim when he died and rose again. For our third point, let's let's look now at how the apostles responded. The apostles were willing to lay down everything and follow after Jesus. Now, 
What should you do if you are working one day or spending time with your family and someone that you have never met approaches you and tells you to drop your work to leave your family and to follow them? Would you say that you have a biblical precedent to do what they tell you? Would you say that the Bible says just to follow, so that's what I'm going to have to do, whether I think it's wise or not? All of the parents in the room are saying, no, <laughs> no, absolutely never do that. So why did the apostles respond this way to Jesus? Now still, we're not learning something primarily about the apostles here. We're still looking at Jesus because the point here is that there is one and only one man worthy to have these men or anyone get up and follow him without question or hesitation. In Mark's gospel, we've already heard John preaching about Jesus. We've seen the Father and the Spirit visibly make it known that his ministry is their ministry. We have seen that God has verified Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus has already gone out preaching the gospel. And we have evidence from the other gospels that these men that Jesus called would have been aware of these things about Jesus as well. They didn't follow him because they were gullible men looking for somebody to follow because it was easy to get them caught up in a movement. They didn't follow him because Jesus exuded some kind of special charismatic aura and they could just feel that this guy was going to be great. They followed him because of what was true about him. What they could already tell was true about him. They had enough evidence, as we've seen, enough evidence from the first events recorded in the gospel that it was worth giving up everything to follow Jesus. They recognized that this call from this man this specific call, this specific man is worth trading their livelihood, their time with their families, eventually even their lives for. It was worth giving up everything that stood between them and following after him. This story does not mean that all of us should expect to reject our jobs and our families to follow Jesus. Remember that these men are being called to the office of apostle. That means that they needed to spend years traveling with Jesus, learning from him, witnessing his ministry, being near him when he died and was raised, and then going out to the world proclaiming his good news. Almost all of them would be martyred. Jesus was calling these apostles to a very specific vocation that would claim their whole lives. So we need to be careful and not just say that this passage means you must leave your job and your family to follow Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians it is good that many of them remain in the situation in which they were called when they become believers. Jesus is going to criticize the Pharisees for not caring for their parents. We're soon actually going to see Jesus go to the house of one of these men who he's called to Simon's house and he's going to take care of his mother-in-law. And while James and John were certainly willing to leave their father to follow Jesus, we just don't actually know what responsibility they showed to their father after this. So this story is not so much a prescription to tell us what it's going to look like when we follow Jesus. But Mark is definitely making a case all throughout this gospel that whatever you might have to give up for the sake of faith in Christ, Jesus will always be worth it. Later in his ministry, Jesus will tell all the crowds around him not just his apostles, that whoever would come after him should deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. For some of us, that could mean 
that we lose those that we love because they have rejected Christ. Our family could reject us. Employers could not want to hire us. The world will hate us. And this cost will lead some people who might otherwise have thought that trusting in Jesus was a good idea to say the cost is too high. I cannot trust in him. Often we might try and change what Jesus did or change what he said so that he would never require us to lose anything that we loved. Jesus would never have the audacity to lay claim upon our comforts, our relationships, our rights, and our pride if we follow him. And so we pray and we plead that the gospel is not going to require us to face any difficulty. Our faith finds its greatest crisis when persecution or opposition or suffering arises. But Jesus says that anyone who has not yet settled on whether or not they would give up their families and livelihood for his sake has just not understood the full weight of his gospel yet. Jesus does allow these things to be lost so that we can recognize the infinitely greater value of himself. The good news that he gave up his whole life to secure for us. Jesus gave up his place with his father his heavenly throne, to come and walk in the wilderness with us, to be humbled among us, to be scorned by us, and then to die for us. This is all that he did to secure us a place with him. It is worth giving up anything that would stand between us and being united with Jesus. It is worth us devoting our whole lives as a living sacrifice. He is always worth everything that we might have to give. And this could mean serious and painful sacrifices. But Jesus also says that whoever trusts in him is his mother and his brother. Jesus promises us not only himself, but a whole family of faith whose love is rooted in him and the gospel, whose love is built up and sanctified so we can love each other more, so while the cost might be high, Christ is ours today and forevermore. The first fruits of the gospel are ours today, and they will only grow and grow forever. So while we are not called to be apostles, we can certainly learn from their willingness to lay down everything and follow Jesus. Do you have any caveats to your commitment to Jesus? Are there things that you would consider a bridge too far if you had to lose them for the sake of the gospel? Would you reject it if your children did or your parents did? Would you reject Jesus if the persecution was too great or if it cost you too much of your pride and your reputation? These disciples did not walk away from their nets and their work because they hated fishing or because they didn't want to spend time with their father. They didn't leave these things because they didn't place any value in them. They walked away because Jesus was worth the cost. Jesus was worth their whole lives. They saw that, and we should too. Yes, count the cost, but never forget the infinitely greater value of Jesus. Now, while this passage is primarily meant to grow our confidence in Christ, it is also meant to give us confidence in those apostles themselves. Our faith does not rest 
on one person who went off alone into a cave and came back saying that they had a special vision from God. Jesus very publicly appointed these men, taught them, trained them, and sent them out. He brought them alongside him from the very beginning so that they could witness everything that he did. He wants our trust in them to be rooted in him. God doesn't want you to be concerned about whether or not these men are saying different things than Jesus did or testifying to something other than what really happened. You can trust their word and you ought to rest in the church that they make up the foundation of. And while we might not share their special commission to found the church upon the gospel, there is some encouragement that we can take here as we go out into the world proclaiming the good news. One thing we can see here is that you do not have to prove your ability or worth to Christ because he is strong in our weakness. If Jesus was willing to choose fishermen as his apostles, to found his entire church on men who had no formal qualification, to choose for them to stand before kings and priests and scribes and preach the gospel, then we can be certain that our place in the church, our ministry to the saints, our own proclaiming of the gospel does not depend upon whether or not we were good enough or smart enough or capable enough for the task on our own. Paul says this quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus chose fishermen with no formal education as his apostles, so that our faith would not rest upon human qualifications, but upon him. How much more is this true of ourselves? Our faith does not rest on what we have done, but in what he has done for us and our ability to walk in faith, to live in righteousness, even to serve his church and proclaim his gospel to this world does not depend upon what we can naturally accomplish, but on what he accomplishes in us. So don't look at your own qualifications. Don't put confidence in them or don't be ashamed of them. God is not looking for people who have proven they have met worldly standards. He's looking for people who will point to him, proclaim his gospel, testify to who he is and what he has done for us. If the gospel depended on our ability to meet the world's qualifications, it would be less of a gospel. Jesus would be less of a savior. But we have seen that this is the whole point of the story. It's not to tell us to get off our couch and get fishing for men. It is meant to tell us to look to Jesus, to his authority, to his power, to the responsibility that he has taken for his church. And then to faithfully proclaim that good news. This is a better motivation for you to go out and proclaim the gospel because we can trust in what he is accomplishing. 
That doesn't mean that we reject learning and striving and growing. We can learn and we can strive now because Jesus is working in us. These apostles were fishermen, but then they devoted their lives to learning from Jesus and growing in grace. So we give glory to Christ by trusting in the power of the Spirit to teach us and equip us, no matter who we were, no matter what our background was, no matter what people would say we were capable of. In closing, we have seen that Jesus is the point of the story, and we are not Jesus in the story, nor are we really these apostles being called fishers of men. Who are we then? Well, the closest you might come to finding yourself in this story is to say that you are a fish. And that might not make for such a nice song. But it's pretty good news, isn't it? Jesus promised these disciples that he would make them fishers of men. God promised that he would send out fishers to bring his people out of punishment and to himself. And he promised that that work would be effective. From the very beginning, Jesus devoted a significant part of his ministry to training, equipping, teaching, and sending out the men who would build the church on their proclamation. This was Jesus devoting his energies to making sure that the gospel would be effective, to making sure that his promise to bring in many people would come true. He promised that people would surely get caught in the apostles' nets and brought to him. His kingdom would be established. His household would be built. This means that if you trust in that gospel that the apostles witnessed and preached and wrote down in the scriptures, if you have believed this good news about Jesus, then fish, you have been caught. God has made sure that you have been caught in his nets by his fishermen. He called and commissioned fishermen to devote their entire lives to make sure that there was a net to catch you. He made sure that they would proclaim the true gospel to bring you in. All through history, he has devoted the lives and ministries of so many people to build up and shepherd his church so that thousands of years after Jesus died and rose again, his church would still be there. His nets would still be in the water so that you could be secured there. You are secured in the gospel. You are secured by God's word. You are secure in his church. There is no getting loose. He has drawn you out of the place of punishment. He did it by taking that punishment himself. He has drawn you by his own powerful arm as surely as he rose from the dead. That is his love for you, and you are secured by the love of Jesus. So be confident in Jesus. Be confident in the Gospels and their proclamation so that you can be confident of your place in the family that he made them the foundation of. And then we do go out and we confidently invite others into this secure salvation. We get to invite other fish to come and get caught in the nets. The nets are still in the water. We still have them in the scriptures. We still proclaim the gospel in the church. And we drive others into those nets whenever we proclaim the good news. And because Jesus' promises are still true, we can trust that there are more fish to be caught no matter who they are, 
no matter where they came from. Anyone can be caught and held secure in the nets of God because that security rests upon his promises. Praise God that he sent his only son who devoted his whole life not just to accomplish our salvation, but to make sure the news would go out so we could be saved by it, so that it would be proclaimed by men who were equipped to establish a household based upon it so that we could surely, securely have a place there and that a place would be made for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Today we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we enjoy this visible, tangible proclamation of the gospel, we can really enjoy together how secure our place in his salvation is. This is a gift for our faith to assure us that we all together, we here are really secure in the nets. We are secure in the house that rests on what he has done and on his apostles and prophets. His body really was broken for you. His blood really was spilled for you. He really is our Savior and our King. And because His kingdom will never fail, you need never doubt as to whether your place in it is secure. Now it is because this is a gift to His church that we would ask that if you are not a member of a church that preaches the gospel, as we would here, that you not take part in this supper with us. You are up till now a guest in God's house not a part of his family. So trust in Jesus. Be secured in his nets. Be baptized. Become a part of the church that his apostles established. Be known as a member of that church. And then come and take part in this supper with us, which declares our security as a family in this family because of what Jesus did for us. I'd like to call the elders forward now.